This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, good morning. Welcome to the first seminar of the day. And uh, it's good to see so many out of bed on a Sunday morning and up and at them. Uh, I'm Nicholas Miller, in charge of this seminar, and what would the Reformers say? What would the Reformers say? And then we have a series of topics, uh, and today we're talking about the great controversy theme. I'm going to try to start pretty much on time. We'll probably have a few more coming in, but I do try to give a short, um, brief summary of the previous presentation, because while these are standalone to some degree, there's also a connectedness. Uh, between the topics that I give, that having an understanding of what's gone on before will help you with today's presentation. And I also like answering a question or two that is either being emailed or uh, texted to me, or perhaps I've seen someone in a corridor, and I know that every question that's asked, there's a lot of others who are wondering about it. So I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and, and start with that now. But let's uh, begin by bowing our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new morning and this new day. Uh, we're excited to be here in Seattle uh, with so many young people, young adults, and young at heart who are anxious to study your word more deeply and have our lives more fully open to the influences of your spirit. I pray that the lessons we draw from history today will shed light on our path, both today and for the future, and that we'll be better Christians for the time that we've spent together here for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, some of you were here yesterday, others of you weren't. Let me uh, introduce myself again a little bit. Nicholas Miller. I'm a professor of church history from Andrews University. I teach in the seminary, the Adventist, uh, Seventh-day Adventist Seminary and the church history department. And I have a PhD in uh, church history uh, from the Reformation to the present uh, with an emphasis on church-state studies, because before that life, I was a lawyer and uh, practiced law for about a dozen years uh, with a, a specialty in the area of church and state. And a couple of my presentations are going to be specifically on issues of religious liberty, uh, Sunday laws, last day events, those kinds of things. Um, but I'm also looking more broadly at questions of theology and the church today, uh, today is the great controversy theme, antique or heirloom, and it's connected with the question of how can a loving God punish. But just to give you a quick sense of where we are then, we have these six presentations happening. And uh, the first one yesterday was about scriptural authority. How do we understand the authority of scripture? What does sola scriptura mean? And uh, how is that different from solo scriptura? which is a practice that we find in, in some parts of our church. Um, tomorrow, or this afternoon rather, or the next presentation, I suppose it's still this morning, Seminar 2 is still this morning, we're going to talk about origins and creation versus theistic evolution. Um, a brief reminder that you can send questions to me by email at nicholas at andrews.edu, or even during the presentation, send a text to this number, 574-274-5207, 
And at the end of the presentation, I'll try to leave a few minutes. Uh, we'll have questions from the floor, and if you've texted me questions, I'll try to address those then. Just a brief, this is the key text for the week, Hebrews 12.1, for the week, for my seminars anyway, over the next couple of days. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So I'm focusing on this question of the great cloud of witnesses. Who are these witnesses? Of course, this is just after the chapter of faith from Hebrews 11, and the witnesses in this case are the faithful from the past. They're no longer living. They're dead. Um, and they're not the real dead, are they? Because we're not surrounded. We understand the state of the dead. We're not surrounded by people, saints in heaven, looking on. But we have their memories. We have their examples. Uh, we're meant to draw courage and inspiration from their lives. But as I posited yesterday, we can also be in dialogue with these witnesses, not through seances, or, but, but through their writings and through their teachings. And this would include the great martyrs and, and men and women of faith from Christian history. And it's not that we become Catholics and we decide that the church fathers are authorities in our lives and in our church teaching, but we open our circle of Bible study to those in the church who just don't happen to be alive today. And we engage with their writings as witnesses so it can provide us a perspective on our own biases and prejudices, because people living in another time and another age aren't subject to the same social forces and don't have the same blind spots that we have. And I think that God has, that, that this is one of the purposes of church history, to share in a dialogue about what the Bible means so that we can perhaps see where we're not understanding, where we can gain a broader and a richer perspective. So we did some of this yesterday. And in just a brief summary, um, I s proposed that there's a difference between solo and sola scriptura. We made a first point, it was sort of an introductory point, about the importance of this studying together. While we each have to be personally convicted of Bible truth, we often come to that conviction in conversation with others as we study the Bible. It's not that their words are authoritative, but their words can show us where we're not understanding, where we're misunderstanding. And there's uh, many examples in the Bible, Christ on the road to Emmaus, uh, Priscilla and Aquila teaching Apollos, that God almost always uses other people to help individuals understand Bible truth. The main point that I brought out was that sola scriptura is something different from solo scriptura, that sola scriptura means by scripture alone, whereas some people understand it as solo scriptura, only scripture. We can only learn about God, about truths, religious truths, by scripture, whereas the reformers, and I gave some examples of Luther and Calvin and others, and Wesley, um, held scripture as the primary authority and as the only basis of church teaching and doctrine, but that we can learn about that doctrine further. For instance, prophecy was an example. You can't get to the date 1844 without using history books to find out when certain kings lived and when, uh, when the um, 
the decree to go forth and rebuild Jerusalem was given. We, we know about the events from biblical history, but the timing of those events, we have to go outside the Bible. So a healthy, balanced view is that there are two books. God has the book of Scripture and the book of nature. And we need to learn and be able to talk about right and wrong and moral reasoning from a study of human nature. And I shared an Ellen White quote um, about the importance of studying what she called moral philosophy. Moral philosophy. Now, she says some other bad things about philosophy, that we shouldn't use philosophy to replace the Bible or to undercut the Bible. But if any of you have read C.S. Lewis uh, or other Christian apologists who draw on human experience and reason to build a bridge to the Bible, it's a very important part of our understanding of the scriptures. Now, a couple of questions came up. We talked about the importance of this history because the Adventist church has been impacted by currents in 20th and 21st century Christianity, most notably liberalism on the one hand and fundamentalism on the other hand. And uh, in the controversies we have in some parts of North America over creation and evolution and homosexuality, we see the influences of liberalism. But we've also been impacted by fundamentalism, which is seen most clearly in an embrace of something called verbal inspiration or dictation theory of inspiration, where some conserv very conservative Christians believe that God dictated the scripture and the prophets just wrote down the words that God gave them. And Ellen White was very clear that no, the Bible was a combination of human and divine and God inspired the people and inspired their thoughts, but there was some latitude and freedom that the people had to choose the words they used. And so there's a couple of, of texts, uh, of, of Ellen White quotes here that talk about uh, this. The Bible is not given to us in grand superhuman language. Jesus, in order to reach man where he is, took humanity. The Bible must be given in the language of men. Everything that is human is imperfect. Different meanings are expressed by the same word. There is not one word for each distinct idea. The Bible was given for practical purposes. The Bible was given for practical purposes. This is a key idea that sets us apart from the fundamentalists who are trying to set the Bible up as a sort of perfectly inerrant, absolutely discrepancy-free book that can survive the test of the most exacting scientific scrutiny. None of us live our lives those ways. Do we understand how airplanes fly? Do we know our mates perfectly before we marry them? No, we don't know these things. Uh, but we're given sufficient evidence. And Ellen White talks about evidence that we have that we can't actually absolutely prove the existence of God, the truths of the Bible, but this objective evidence combined with our experiences can give us a certainty about life. And then here's the, another quote about the writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. And this affects then how she looks at versions of the Bible. There's a in, in, in the fundamentalist movement, you have a King James Version-only movement, and some of that's crept into the Adventist church. And I can assure you, it didn't come from the pioneers. It didn't come from Ellen White. It came from these Christian fundamentalists who, uh, I don't want to disparage them too greatly. I love them. They take the Bible seriously, but they take it seriously in ways that are actually harmful for the Bible. They hold it up to higher standards that it holds, it, I shouldn't say higher, I should say artificial standards that it holds itself up to. 
And so we see with Ellen White, here's Willie White, um, Ellen White's uh, son, in Ministry Magazine in 1947, says, Before the revised version was published, there leaked out from the committee statements regarding changes which they intended to make. Some of these I brought to Mother's attention, Mother being Ellen White, of course. And she gave me very surprising information regarding these scriptures. This led me to believe that the revision, when it came to hand, would be a matter of great service to us. So we're not quite sure what Ellen White said, this surprising information, but it seems to have been positive because it left Willie White with the impression that they would be using these new versions. And indeed, almost immediately after the appearance of the English Revised Version, Mrs. White made use of it in her books, as she did also of the American Standard Revision when it became available in 1901. So Ellen White was a user. She continued to use the King James Version as well. Um, and so she didn't abandon it or give up on it, but she continued to use the new versions, and we need to be careful users, selective users of a variety of versions. So, but for today's topic, the great controversy, is it still relevant today? And this is really two questions. Uh, yesterday I gave a little bit of my experiences growing up. I talked about a conversion, uh, a deeper conversion that I had at the age of 17 where I really surrendered my life as fully as I could understand in any way to Christ, willing to set aside my interests, my music, my reading, my future plans, and then was delighted to discover that God had even more exciting and better plans than those. It's never a mistake. It's never something you'll be disappointed when you unreservedly give yourself to God. But I was a teenager in a complicated church, a moderately conservative Adventist home in a more liberal Southern California environment, uh, the Loma Linda area, and there were lots of questions floating around. In fact, it was just about this time that um, Desmond Ford raised all his questions about the sanctuary. And that was a great blessing to me, actually, because before he raised the questions, I don't think I even knew a sanctuary existed. I was like, what is this thing that he's denying? Let's find out about it. Why is this important? And so I owe a great debt to Desmond Ford because he caused me to study these matters and to realize how important the sanctuary doctrine really was to the Adventist church. And we've been told by the spirit of prophecy that God, if people become too complacent with the truth, that God will allow errors and heresies to come in to provoke us to study. And this is exactly what, what happened to me. And uh, so I began as a teenager to look into questions about the sanctuary and why it was important Another question that was being raised in Loma Linda at the time, and seemed to be a separate question, but I'm going to propose that it's, reason, that it's a connected question, is um, what does this struggle between good and evil, that we call the great controversy theme, suggest about the character of God? And if we believe that God is a loving God, and that's the point of the great controversy, how can we believe in a God that's willing to punish and that is willing uh, and, in fact, apparently required to punish sinners and therefore requires a substitute uh, on our behalf. And what happened on the cross? And some people began to suggest that, no, God doesn't punish, that the Christ dying on the cross wasn't a substitute, wasn't a substitutionary atonement. And this filled me with great puzzlement. And it, it, it was, why does sin require the death penalty and a more personally related question, I don't know if other young people wonder about this, is 
We can imagine why some people's sins require the death penalty. You know, we've had this terrible shooting in Connecticut and mass murders and, and, and the 20th century filled with powerful mass murderers, Stalin and Hitler. And we can imagine why men like that deserve the death penalty. But most of you here, and certainly when I was 17 or 18 and, and, and since then, haven't done things that would even require human laws to send us to jail, much less kill us. How can it be that a little bit of impatience or a little bit of, of uh, anger or a little bit of uh, cheating on a quiz should be punished by the death penalty? It seems a very hard thing to understand. And so all these questions um, percolated in my uh, teenage mind. And um, it's questions, I think, that other young people in the church face. And it seems that I've talked about the two extremes, the liberal side and the fundamentalist side, and um, um, there seemed to be a liberal influence in the church that said God does not kill or destroy or even punish. He would not require a substitute for sin, neither does he enforce his standards, and neither should we. As a natural consequence, is our punishment enough? Lifestyle choices such as no-fault divorce and remarriage, homosexuality, doctrinal diversity over a wide range of issues should just be tolerated and embraced as the loving thing. It was almost a view of love as sentimentality. But I think there was also another extreme. Fundamentalists might say, whatever God does, by definition, is loving. We should ask no questions about it, whether he's killing groups of of people or nations, inflicting judgments on nations, pouring out plagues on the wicked. God's ways are higher than our ways, and we are not his judge. We cannot understand his standards and have no right to question. It's almost love as sovereignty. It's almost a Calvinist idea. God is in charge. How dare we ask questions? But I want to suggest today that there's a third way a theme called God's moral government of love that is the true core and background of the great controversy theme, both the book and the idea, and that while we like to talk about it as Adventists, that it's not original to Adventists, and there's a deep, uh, um, um, deep roots that it has in a Protestant tradition, and that if we understand that Protestant tradition it will give us clearer insights into how this doctrine should impact our church today. And it will give us clearer insights as to why this God's moral government of love, if fully understood, would help solve an array of doctrinal discussions, including discussions about creation and evolution, uh, the state of the dead, although that's not widely uh, questioned inside the church, um, but uh, questions about the atonement, Questions about the sanctuary. Um, There are a number of issues and places where we're confused, and I think it's because, in part, we've lost sight of this grand Protestant theme that's especially connected with the sanctuary truth. And these questions that were being raised in Loma Linda by Ford about the sanctuary and by others about the nature of the atonement and by others about creation and now by others about homosexuality actually all have a common thread in the central Adventist doctrine. But to go and look at that history, I want to start with a historical puzzle regarding Ellen White. Uh, Many of you know that for a period of time she went to Australia. 
she became a little too rambunctious, the brethren decided in Washington, over some issues of righteousness by faith and church leadership. And they were a little bit tired of her, and they decided to send her on assignment to Australia. And uh, it's kind of a remarkable story, because she's a prophet, and she knew what they were doing. But because God didn't give her a direct revelation that she should do otherwise, she followed the wishes of the brethren to show, in a sense, her willingness to follow the authority of the church, um, which is a remarkable thing for a prophet to do. But when she was gone, she sent back a letter to Willie White, and she said this, I have sent for four or five large volumes of Barnes Notes on the Bible. I think they are in Battle Creek in my house now sold somewhere with my books. I hope you will see that my property, if I have any, is cared for and not scattered as common property everywhere. I may never visit America again. It's interesting. Prophets aren't told everything about the future, are they? Because she did come back. And my best books should come to me when it is convenient. My best books should come to me when convenient. So she is talking about Barnes' notes on the Bible as being among her best books, right? Now, this is an interesting comment, because sometimes in, in uh, conservative Adventist circles, we don't want to read books not by our presses or not by Adventists. And I think it's healthy to be careful about what we read, no doubt. Um, but here, does anyone know who Albert Barnes is? Does anyone have a copy of Albert Barnes' commentaries on the Bible? They were probably the most popular 19th century Protestant commentary. A million copies of his New Testament commentaries existed by the 1880s. Incredible number of books for that time and, and, and era. And he, now this is where the puzzle gets interesting, he was a Presbyterian commenter on the Bible. Now those of you who know anything about your, your church history, Presbyterians are basically Calvinists. They're the Reformed tradition predestination and the limited atonement and uh, you know, God choosing who's going to be saved and lost. So what's Ellen White doing reading the commentaries of a Presbyterian uh, a commentator? Uh, Ellen White comes from a Methodist background, and she's very Arminian, free will, if you will. And here she is saying, these are some of my best books. Well, this is an interesting historical puzzle and mystery that is partially solved by this question of the moral government of God, because Albert Barnes was a great lover and expositor of this Protestant tradition of God's moral government. And I want to go back to the roots of it to help you understand it and to show the rich heritage we have as Adventists. It goes back to questions of freedom of the will. Uh, those of you who know your church history uh, are aware that Calvin was a predestinarian. God chose you to be saved, and if he chose you, you couldn't resist it, and that was that. Uh, less of us know that actually Luther basically believed the same thing. Both Luther and Calvin tended to put a great emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Now, we call ourselves theologically Arminian. Now, that doesn't mean we're from Armenia, it means, the, which is the country, but Jacob Arminius was a theologian, a uh, reformer, who lived about 100 years after Luther and Calvin, in the 1590s and the 1600s. And he's famous for systematically putting together a theology of the freedom of the will. But it's important as Adventists to know that he wasn't the first, or there's an argument to be made here that 
you know, the Protestant Reformation was really about predestination, and you have free will only coming along 100 years later. Have you heard of the Anabaptists? The Anabaptists were the more radical part of the Reformation. Uh, they were as early as Luther and Calvin. Luther and Calvin interact with them. And the Anabaptists, some of them believe in soul sleep. Some of them keep the Sabbath. And they all believe in freedom of the will. And the important thing about the freedom of the will is that all of those that believe in it on the Protestant side, and Arminius especially brings this out, they don't believe in it because they think that humans are so important and their reason is so good and we have to elevate humanity. They do it because they, don't, they, they, they are concerned for the reputation and honor of God and they are concerned not to make God the author of evil. Because Calvinists have a hard time, a, a difficult problem, in saying if God ordains some people to be sinners and they have no choice and they can't do anything but sin, then how is it that God's not the author of evil? Now, Calvinists would deny that God is the author of evil, but they have a great problem on their hands. And Arminius recognized this, and he moved to a theology of freedom of the will, not to elevate humanity, but to point out the great firewall between God and evil. And that firewall is human free will, and Satan's free will in a sense. God creates his free will being that's perfect, but that being can now choose to do evil. But the responsibility for sin and evil is on that being and not on God. So there was a, um, a famous Dutchman, Hugo Grotius, who was a, the, we know him, I studied him about him at law school, the father of international law, but what was less well-known is that he was a deeply committed Christian who was a follower of Arminius and was a remonstrant, uh, who were uh, followers of Arminius who were put in jail by the Calvinists who were in charge of Holland. Um, he wrote the first apologetic work, The Truth of the Christian Religion, and he was sentenced to life in prison because of his support of these free will ideas. It's a great story for book lovers because he was this world-renowned scholar, so the Dutch let him read and write even while he was in jail, and his wife would bring him boxes, trunks filled with books uh, so that he could carry out his scholarly endeavors. And one day, instead of putting the books back in the trunk to be taken out, he put himself in the trunk, and the trunk was taken out, and he escaped from jail uh, because of his books. And uh, so uh, you scholars out there, if your wives or your husbands give you a bad time about all the books you have, just tell them about Grotius being saved by his books. But the important point about Grotius was he came up with something. He was the one that authored, that came up with the term uh, of the moral government of God. He took Arminius's idea about the importance of freedom of the will and that it got God off the hook for creating evil and he expanded on this and said, and it's important, therefore, that God be seen as a moral leader and governor, not one who uses evil or produces evil. And he used this theory to explain why Christ had to die. And he became known as the moral government of God in the atonement, the, the moral government theory of the atonement. And to understand it, we have to go back a little bit to understand how the Christian church had previously been struggling with this. You know, as a teenager, these questions were coming, why did Christ have to die for me? If I don't 
kill other people when they sin against me and I can forgive them without even taking some of their blood or causing them some harm. Why can't God? Christian theologians used to wrestle with this. Anselm said that Christ must die in our place to satisfy the impaired honor of God. Calvin said Christ must die in our place to satisfy the offended holiness of God. But the question would always come, well, why is, is it because God is sort of the biggest narcissist in the world and that if you offend his honor, that he has to have satisfaction before he feels personally restored? I mean, that, that would seem to be a very strange deity to have. Grotius answered these questions in a very, many of us find, satisfying way. He removed, he moved the problem from, the, from being an individual offended deity and put it on God as his role as ruler of the universe. And so it's not so much about God and, what's, and what God is feeling or not feeling or his honor or I'm not saying God doesn't have honor or doesn't care about these things, but he is governor of the universe. And in his role as governor of the universe, he has to uphold the laws that make his universe run and operate. And if he starts making exceptions in those laws for some people, he loses the ability to enforce those laws against others consistently. He can always be accused of being inconsistent and unfair. And so if he makes an exception for one, he is bound to make it for all, and law becomes unenforceable. So Grotius' insight is that in enforcing his law, God is not doing it out of some personal sense of pick or pride or impaired glory. Rather, he is acting on behalf of the benefit of all the beings of the universe that depend on the stability, fairness, and morality of God's government. So Christ must die in our place to allow him to forgive us while upholding the justice of his law upon which his whole moral government of the universe is based. Now this took theology in a rather radical turn because it now suggested that we could understand important things about God and, it, and apply some level of human understandings of fairness and morality to God. Neither Luther nor Calvin understood this. They believed Luther had a theory about the, the deus absconditus, the hidden God, that, yeah, God is fair in the Bible, but behind that, there's this God that can do anything he wants, and we don't know how he will act, and we can't even try to understand it. But um, Grotius put together a God that said, no, he's part of our universe. He has given us a way to understand right and wrong and fairness, and he's willing. See, if you think about the great controversy theme, if God is going to be on trial, there has to be a way of us understanding God. And it's not that he's on trial in some sense where we're judges over him, but he is allowing us to see his government and to see that, in fact, his principles are right and just and fair. Now, you may not have heard of Grotius before today. Some of you may have, but many names that you have heard of were directly influenced by him. John Milton, Paradise Lost. He was a Puritan uh, from a Calvinist background. So who, why is he writing things like to justify the ways of God to man? This isn't Calvinism and Puritanism. This is after he met and got to know Grotius. 
and he accepted free will theory about human choice, and he accepted notions of God being on trial before the universe. The Wesleys, Samuel and Susanna Wesley, were the parents, of course, of John and Charles Wesley. Uh, Grotius uh, was their favorite commentator. Uh, Charles and John Wesley read Grotius at Oxford, where they put their Methodist club together. Now, something that's very important and very interesting is that this moral government of God idea isn't just kind of head theory that gives you a better theology for doing apologetics. It actually made some very dramatic differences in the way people lived in society. And the moral government of God, those that accepted it, and I think you can see the reasons why, if you believe that God himself holds his government to moral standards and ideals, what does that say about human governments? Are human governments just purely sovereign things that the king can do whatever he wants with no repercussion? Or should kings and human rulers be held to standards of morality and fairness and righteousness? Well, this is what Wesley and others came to believe. You may have heard of William Wilberforce. He was the man in England, if you've seen the movie Amazing Grace, who was the single greatest cause of the end of the slave trade in the British Empire. He was raised a Methodist, and he imbibed this view of God and God's moral government. Wesley was strong anti-slave in his views, anti-slavery in his views. The last letter that Wesley wrote was to William Wilberforce, urging him and encouraging him to, to, to follow his work in stamping out the slave trade. And you'll probably have come across arguments that Christians didn't oppose slavery often in America. They used the Bible to support slavery. And unfortunately, this is true. But when you look at it more closely, it turns out that those Christians that believed in predestination and were strongly Calvinistic tended to support notions of slavery, that people should just live where they were born and they shouldn't try to change their destiny and their fate. But those Christians that were Arminian, and especially those that believed in the moral government of God, were much more socially active, much more willing to stand up on behalf of the rights of the weak, the oppressed, and the enslaved. This is an important point because I'm making it in history, but we'll all see this in our own Adventist church history. Um, as we understand the moral government of God, we become more socially active. As we forget about it, we become less socially active. Now, this idea comes to America in a couple of ways. Of course, Methodism comes to America, so the moral government of God ideas come with Methodism, which is early on very anti-slavery. And here's a Puritan who adopts the moral government of God theme, and he uses language that you might recognize. Uh, Samuel Hopkins, in the 1700s, says this, The law of God shows the duty of man and requires of him what is perfectly right, and no more, no less. It is therefore an eternal, unalterable rule of righteousness, which cannot be abrogated or altered in the least iota by an infinitely perfect, unchangeable legislature and governor, consistent with his character. So this helps solve one of the great problems. If there's this standard of fairness... Is it outside God? Is it something that's imposed on him? Is there something greater than God? But no, the answer is that this fairness, this justice, is his character. And so he's acting consistently not with something external, but with something internal. 
And this language of the character of God being reflected in his government and in his law, do we ever hear that in Adventism and in Ellen White? But this is 100 years before she's writing, so there's deep strains and streams to these ideas. To save man without penalty would be inconsistent with rectitude, righteousness, wisdom, and goodness, and would put an end to all perfect moral government. And now we come to helping solve the mystery of Ellen White and the Barnes commentaries, because while the Reformed Calvinist part of the church is generally opposed to free will and the moral government of God, this idea of the moral government of God theory of the atonement is so compelling and attractive that certain Puritan Calvinist theologians start adopting it and accepting it. And they adopt it without accepting free, human free will. But it's such an unstable coalition of ideas because to believe that God has a moral government uh, that, uh, that, that somehow he's still choosing who's going to be saved and lost... It doesn't last very long. So you actually get Calvinists who begin embracing freedom of the will, still insisting that they're Calvinists and not Arminians, although no one's quite sure how that is. Um, But that's how Nathaniel Taylor is at Yale College, and he lectures on the moral government of God. You probably haven't heard of him, but I think you have heard of Charles Finney, the great evangelist of the Second Great Awakening, who's preaching in the 1820s and 1830s in and around the places that James White and Ellen White and uh, uh, Joseph Bates are living. And they are, it appears, influenced by his views. And he is preaching about the moral government of God. He's emphasizing personal choice and the fact that God died for all. It's also very interesting that he's one of the evangelical leaders that's strongly anti-slavery. And Oberlin College is founded in part by students who are wanting to be active in the anti-slavery abolitionist movement. So again, this moral government of God idea is going hand in hand with social justice and reform of society to do good for people. It's not just about pie in the sky and a future righteous kingdom of God, but it's about doing good for people around us today. And this is where we come to Albert Barnes. He is the expositor of these moral government of God's ideas. I first come across them as I'm um, dealing with these questions as a 17 and 18 and 19-year-old. I look on my father's shelves, and he has these Barnes notes on the New Testament. And so I'm reading in Romans and reading in Hebrews, and I'm picking up these moral government of God arguments. And I didn't realize at the time that until a few years later, if you visit the Ellen White estate and you look at all the books in her library... There's a full set of the Barnes commentaries, uh, and she, of course, calls them her best books. And now that I've exposed you to some of these other quotes, you'll see this very clearly in her own writings. Ellen White on God's moral government. It is the sophistry of Satan that the death of Christ brought in grace to take the place of the law. The death of Jesus did not change or annul or lessen in the slightest degree the law of Ten Commandments. That precious grace offered to men through Savior's blood establishes the law of God. Since the fall of man, God's moral government and his grace are inseparable. They go hand in hand through all dispensations. God's love is represented in our day as being of such a character as would forbid his destroying the sinner. 
In no kingdom or government is it left to the lawbreakers to say what punishment is to be executed against those who have broken the law. God is a moral governor as well as a father. He is the lawgiver. He makes and executes his laws. Law that has no penalty is of no force. Satan represents that while the threatenings of God's word are to serve a certain purpose in his moral government, they are never to be literally fulfilled. I'm going to go on to the next slide because it brings out this point of such pardon would show the abandonment of principles of righteousness which are the very foundation of the government of God. It would fill the unfallen universe with consternation. If punishment wasn't carried out, it would fill the universe with consternation because they would realize that the principles that the whole universe was dependent on had now been undermined and called into question. It's not that they delight in the death of sinners or they delight in punishment, but God's moral government can only exist if it is consistently carried out. So this language isn't... uh, This is Ellen White's writings, but these are ideas that she is getting from the Holy Spirit, getting from Revelation, but are also coming from this great stream of Protestant thought and tradition that she's writing in. And we do ourselves a disservice by trying to cut ourselves off from all the, the heritage of Protestant thought that we have on this question because it's so rich and so important. And in some ways, for some reason, we've lost sight. Maybe it's because of our 20, 21st century, we're so individualistic, we don't like talking about law and authority, we don't like talking about punishment. But in many circles, we've overlooked this language to the point that in trying to understand the reason for the atonement, um, we believe the Bible teaches it. But this framework of the moral government of God and the larger question of why it needs to happen is often not articulated. There was a, a, one of our universities a year or two ago had a, a teacher who was teaching God doesn't punish, God doesn't enforce his law, you know, it's, it, sin basically suffers from its own natural consequences. And so theologians and pastors in the area responded to this with a document And uh, I was asked to review it, and it was a good document, but nowhere did it mention God's moral government and the moral government theory of the atonement. And it's almost as though, as a church, our memory on this has, um, has weakened, and in some places we've lost sight of it entirely. We still talk about the great controversy, but everyone sort of understands there's a battle between good and evil, What's less well understood is this important role of God's character and his principles and the stability and ordering of the universe. Now, Ellen White, I think she modifies the notion of God's moral government by providing even more of a focus on love. When she's done with it, it's not just God's moral government, it's God's moral government of love, right? And morality is an important part of it, but the the important focus is the love part of it. But she holds both of them in an important balance. And even in her own day, she's talking about love that devolves to sentimentalism and that just allows people an excuse and there's no talk of accountability and justice. But there's a series of important doctrines that are connected to this moral government of God idea. The atonement is an obvious one. Why does Christ need to die for sinners? It's a state of the dead in hellfire. If God burns people in hell forever and ever, 
how is this consistent with any kind of uh, moral uh, rectitude, with, with any kind of fairness? Creation, death, and sin. Where did death come from in God's good creation? The big objection to theistic evolution, I believe, and we'll talk more about this uh, at the next session, isn't so much that we have to read Genesis 1 and 2 literally. In fact, there were fundamentalists in the early 1900s who read the Bible more literally than we did, but still viewed Genesis 1 and 2 as some kind of symbolic statement of long periods of time because they were Calvinists and they didn't worry about God's character and they were able to reconcile, look, if God creates a bunch of people to damn them in hell forever, then what's a little suffering during creation, right? You don't have a problem with that. But if you think God is a moral God and that pain and suffering is a short-term response to the entrance of sin, then God's not going to be using pain and suffering in a good creation, but another important point, law and Sabbath. Why does a symbol of God's authority play such a central role in closing events? Why would a day of worship, is there really a big difference between the seventh day and the first day? And why is this such a dramatically important issue? And really, you can only see the importance of it if you see the importance of this framework of God's law and his role as governor of a moral universe that has to be maintained. And this then takes on a central role in understanding this question of authority. But another important point, social justice teaching. We understood this teaching very clearly in the 1890s, 1910s, and we were strongly progressive as a church in our politics. We were anti-slavery. We worked against racism. Uh, yes, we had to acknowledge in certain parts of the country there was such strong racism that we had to uh, uh, allow a level of segregation in our church uh, services. But according to Ellen White, it was only until the Lord could show us a better way. But in the 1920s and 30s, something strange happened. As we became impacted by the fundamentalism of the South, which was largely Calvinist in orientation, many of the fundamentalists are Calvinists, um, we moved away from being concerned about issues of social justice. And rather than being progressive in our politics, we actually became behind in our politics. And as society moved towards desegregation, we stayed conservative. And in the 40s and 50s and 60s, our pastors were told not to be involved in the civil rights movements because that was politics. Um, there was a uh, professor at the seminary in my department uh, with the first black professor at the seminary. And when he came to town, he had such difficulty getting a, a house because of his color that he had to send a colleague to go and look at houses for him. And he showed up, uh, found a good house, showed up at the closing at the bank, and the owner of the house, when he saw that it was a black man, tried to renege on the deal and get out of the deal. And the bank said, no, you've come this far, you can't do that. The sad, really sad part of the story is the fellow who was selling the house was a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in the community there. Something wrong happened to our church in the 20s and 30s and 40s that caused us to lose sight of the progressive nature of these moral principles. And now progressive politics is, is associated with liberal theology. 
And that's not the way it was at all. It was this conservative understanding of God and his free choice of his moral government and his consistent to principles of fairness that made these biblically conservative Adventists socially progressive on a number of issues and a number of fronts. And that's an important lesson, I believe, for our church today. But also, of course, the sanctuary message in some ways sums it all up. Is the primary message of judgment in the sanctuary about individual salvation? Now certainly there is that, of course, where we want to see who's been faithful. Um, But if you study the Bible closely, the sanctuary is about God's kingdom being vindicated through his church on earth. And there's a different emphasis, and we're going to talk more about this tomorrow in how you view the closing events and the sanctuary message tied in with those closing events. If you see this as being focused on the vindication of God and his government, uh, rather than the whole thing being wrapped around solely my individual salvation. Not that my salvation is not important, of course. But to close with these questions about the atonement, why does the law condemn to death a mediocre sinner like the Adventist ad- average Adventist teen or young adult? Have you done anything worthy of death? Why is God so much more strict and apparently less merciful than human law is? I think this moral government of God framework helps in part, but it doesn't fully answer the story. And I think to fully answer the story, you have to come face to face with human evil. And I did that a few years ago. Um, Fortunately, not live evil uh, for the most part. It was dead evil. Um, I went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Has anyone had that experience? It's a really very depressing two or three hours that's just rather almost overwhelming about the evilness of humans to other humans. For me, the greatest revelation in coming out of it, though, wasn't the terrible treatment of the Jews, because I think I already knew about that. I'd done a lot of reading, and I'd done a lot of, um, of uh, seen, seen films and documentaries, and knew it, it made it more personal, it made it even more real. But the thing that really kind of shook me was having a sense of the humanity of the Germans and seeing that these Germans were at what I might call the peak of our Western, of the things that we value in Western civilization. I'd come through law school, I'd been to an Ivy League university, and I knew the importance of the ideas and the seminar system. And the, at the beginning of the, 19th, the 20th century, the great leaders of education in America went to Germany because we so valued their insights and their philosophies. And it was realizing that the very best of Western civilization, of this thing that I was so bound to be a part of, had done these terrible things. It was those that appreciated Goethe and Beethoven and all the wonderful works of of, the highest achievements that we've had were the ones that made uh, lampshades from human skin and presided over mass murder. And it made me, for the first time, realize what somebody looking from outside the world must see when they looked at me. Yeah, they saw Nick Miller, a kind of mediocre average sinner who didn't really do anything that dramatic on the outside. But he was the same human being, or he had the same human flesh and human nature that did these Nazis who killed these millions of Jews. 
And if given the same circumstances and same opportunity and same background and upbringing, who's to say that Nick Miller wouldn't do exactly the same thing? I realized that they were me and I was them. I was more like the Germans in some ways than I was like the Jews. And the Jews, given the same opportunity, could do the same thing is part of the lesson as well. And it gave me a very different view of sin. Once you see the solidarity of the human race and you realize that we are all of the same stuff, the same fallen sinful flesh, that the little flashes of impatience or temper or lust that I have are just indicators of the things that I am capable of that we see more fully in people who are raised in different circumstances under different conditions. That's me. I'm them. We're all one and the same. That Hitler and Stalin and all these nasty names that we like to completely separate from us is just us taken to an incredible level of magnification. And looking at that, you realize what an alien and unfallen being looking at Nick Miller says. Well, as long as Nick Miller's that way, unregenerate and fallen, he's not safe to be in the universe, right? And it's not that I'm condemned and killed because I uh, stole a piece of chewing gum, but it's that stealing the piece of chewing gum shows who I am and what I belong to, and that whole thing is a rotten mess that can't be safe in God's universe. And this was, uh, this was an understanding for me that was very powerful and helpful in understanding even the fairness of God in condemning what we view as very minor sins. It's this whole horrible network of you without Christ, you and I are walking existential threats to the peace and order of God's universe. To end on a more positive note, and Ellen White puts it in a, in a positive way, the whole universe, after the, the great controversy happens, the whole universe will have become witnesses to the nature and results of sin and its utter extermination, which at the beginning would have brought fear to angels and dishonor to God, will now vindicate his love and establish his honor before the universe of beings who delight to do his will and in whose heart is his law. The law of God, which Satan has reproached as the yoke of bondage, will be honored as the law of liberty. A tested and proved creation will never again be turned from allegiance to him whose character has been fully manifested before them as fathomless love and infinite wisdom. Great Controversy 504. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.